Well, good morning. We are in week number one of a brand new series called The Covenant. As we think about church, uh, this whole church thing, you know, maybe maybe you have been taught this, that if this whole spiritual thing is to be, it's up to me, right? Maybe, maybe you have thought that uh, your job is to seek God and then work really, really hard to keep God. Maybe that's how you have been raised. Maybe... Um, maybe for you it's not seeking God because, or, or keeping God because maybe you realize that the Bible says that it's not up to you. God keeps you. You don't have to make that happen. God does that. But maybe you have been raised with some kind of experience. You, maybe you had a great experience in a church um, and it gave you a great feeling. Um, you really felt that God was there and he was present and maybe you felt he was really present in and around you. And maybe you have been working to keep that feeling to do the right things, to keep that feeling of God being right there and being present. All of these things really have something very similar with the world religions that exist. Because here's what the world religions, basically, they can be summarized to say this, that God has a scale. And on that scale, then, you have to place the things that you do, you know, whatever it is that you do. And so let's place over here on this side, these are some bad things, you know, some evil things, some maybe not so great, great, really huge evil, just some, just some little evil, but it's there. And it tilts the scale on the evil side. And then we work really, really hard to, to do some good things. And so we put some good things there. Oh, that wasn't enough. It didn't tilt it enough. And so we work really hard to find, well, what are some things I can do to tilt the scale? So we look and we try to tilt it in our favor, in our direction. That's what we try to do. We work hard. And that's what really, for the most part, all the religions in the world are really trying to do that same thing. For instance, uh, if you're a Buddhist, you're trying really hard to tilt the scale in your favor to alleviate. If you do enough good, you can alleviate your pain and suffering in this life right now that you have. That's what they're trying to do. Uh, Hindus, they have 330 million gods. That's how many they have, basically. And you will be, this is what they say, you will be reincarnated uh, reincarnated time and time and time again until you do enough good that one day then you will be kind of uh, made one with one of the 330 million gods. So they're trying to work the scales. Uh, if you are Islamic, then you're, you, you, there's this paradise for you, and if you keep the Islamic commands and the Islamic law, you're trying to tilt the scale in your favor, but really you're just trying to tilt the scale in hopes that you might make it because you never are promised or guaranteed under the Islamic teaching that you will make it. There's only one way to guarantee that you'll get into paradise in Islam. I'm not sure if you know what that is, but it's you, if you kill non-Muslims, then you are guaranteed paradise according to the Quran. And not everybody likes to talk about that because it's certainly not politically correct, but that's what it says. And that's what they say. They're still trying to tilt the scales unless they want to work around the system and kill you, then they might get in. So that's their guarantee. But we even have in our world, we even have some things that are called uh, some groups that, that would be defined as Christian deviation. In other words, they have deviated from the Christian truth. But when you look at some of what they say, 
when you listen to it, they use some of the same words that we use, but they're really, they have some different definitions and meanings than we have when we use them. So they're not really Christian. They just kind of sound Christian. One of those groups is called the Latter-day Saints. And the Latter-day Saints, another word for that is Mormon. And the Mormons teach, the Latter-day Saints teach, if you keep the Mormon law, the Mormon rules, if you do, if you are good and you keep those laws, if you tilt the scales really deeply in your favor, here's what they say, that you one day, if you're a man, will become a god of your own planet, just like we have a god of this planet, this world. You, if you live the Mormon life, the good Mormon life, will, and according not to the Bible, but according to the Book of Mormon, you will get your own planet and you will be the god of that planet. Now, if you're a lady, tough luck, I'm sorry. You just have to birth celestial beings for eternity. Well, that's a bonus, huh? Maybe not. That's what they teach. Now, but again, it's using the scale. You have to live the good Mormon life. There's other groups. There's a group called Jehovah's Witnesses. They teach, they teach that... Now, they use a lot of words the same that we use. They just have different meanings and definitions that change it to where it's not the same gospel we're talking about. It's very, very different. And so they deviate, but they have a similar thing they teach. They say, if you, if you live this way, a certain way, the certain path here, then you are going to better your position in paradise if you live according to these laws. Now, here's the thing. These are world religions. And the last two I talked about are, are what you would label a Christian deviation. They're not Christian the way we define it according to the Bible. World religions, Christian deviations. But here's the fact. The reality is this, that even among what we would consider true Christian churches that stick to the Bible, follow the Bible just like it is there, there are still many, many, many Christians who are doing something very similar to this, the scales, when it comes to their spiritual life. Very similar to the other world religions. They are trying to get in good because they know they've done some bad things. The Bible calls it sin. And these Christians are trying to do enough good to balance the scales in their favor so that one day the judge God will look and say, yes, you made it. You did it. Come on in. You did a good job. You just barely made it, some of you, but you made it. And we have many, many people today who are Christians who are still living according to the scales of the other world religions. Now, we can look at our amazing scriptures that God has given us. We call it the Bible. And there's nothing like that in the entire world. And I don't have the time today to break this down. I just want to mention, according to our Bible, the scriptures, we can look at the other world religions and we can soundly say that what they are doing and that philosophy and the meaning behind all of that, it's, it's just wrong. It's not according to the scripture that God has provided us. We don't have time to break that down today, but we're going to take an, a look at it in another direction here in just a moment. But we can say that. We can say that with clarity. But yet, even though we can look at other world religions and we can say that what they are doing is wrong, we fail to see that so often in our own lives we are doing the same thing. 
we are trying to earn God's favor. And then once we get it, if we hope we do, then we're trying to do enough good to keep his favor. So that one day when we die, the judge God himself will look at us and say, well done, you can come in, you did enough good to outweigh the bad. Now here's really the problem with that. I'm blind up here, there's nothing I can see. Here's the problem with that. Because the reality is, we will never, ever, ever tilt the scale in our favor. Ever. We get the whole premise wrong when we're looking at that. The problem is not that we have not done enough good to outweigh the bad. That's not the, pro- that's not the issue at all. The issue is this. There can be no evil, no sin, period, in this at all. That's the standard. Not that we do enough to make up for what we have done. The standard is there can be no sin in there at all. And that is why we will never, ever, with no exception of any one of us in this room, we will never, ever tilt the scale in our favor. Because the standard, we think the standard is quantity. The standard is there can be no sin at all. Now today, we're going to kind of jump in front of this before the scales. And we're going to begin looking through this series at some covenants that God has made. But first, let me give you the context very quickly. This is what we are believing about God. We're not going to go to all the scripture for this because this part right here is not the point of today. But let me very quickly lay a foundation for you. Here's what God, some of the things that God teaches us about himself in scripture that we find. That God, number one, knows all. He knows everything. God does not learn. He already knows. God knows. The second thing is God is all powerful. There's nothing God cannot do. God is all powerful. God is also, the Bible tells us, is ever present. God exists. He's present. He's everywhere. Not everything. That's no, don't misunderstand me, but God is ever present. And then also that God does not change. God is the same today, yesterday, forever. God is the same. Now this very God that knows all, is all powerful, ever present, doesn't change. This amazing, big, huge God tells us about himself in his word. And this God, this amazing God, decided to create a world and then to create people and place those people on this world. Now listen to this though, because God knows everything, because he knows all, he knew that these very people that he would create would blow it. They would they would just blow it big time, make mistake after mistake. Bible calls that sin. He knew he would sin, but guess what? God decided to create anyway, and to create you, to create me, to create man. He did it anyway, and because he knew they would blow it, before he ever created, he already knew the plan he was going to use to redeem, to rescue his creation. He already knew that from the very beginning. So, let me give you a summary, a little visual summary. Ken's going to have it on the screen for you. God created, all right? Now, here we go. Number two, this is the thing here. God created Adam. That was the first man. God created Adam. And what did I just tell you? Creation blew it. So Adam made a mistake. Here's the next one. Adam, he blew it big time. He messed up. He failed. Now, 
God knew that was going to happen. But if you take Adam, now for generations after Adam, they continued to fail, they continued to blow it, it got worse, it got worse, it got worse, and God said, okay, hey, hang, hang tight, we're going to kind of start over a little bit, kind of a fresh start, restart. God decided to restart with a guy named Noah. This is nine generations after Adam, Noah is on the scene. God actually makes a covenant with, with Noah, but we're not going to, that, Noah's covenant with God is not part of this teaching series. We're going to start 10 generations after Noah. We have a guy named Abram. Now on the screen here, it's going to be called Abraham. You'll hear me today, maybe go back and forth between using the name Abram and Abraham. I use Abraham a lot of times out of habit just because that's how we know him. But God changed his name to Abraham. Uh, In this story, this part of the story, his name is Abram. God has not yet changed his name. But God made some really important promises, and he made a covenant with Abram. And so this is going to be our launch pad, our springboard for this series as we look at this first covenant here we're going to talk about, um, not counting the ones that came before. We're going to start here with Abram. Now, God made some important, important promises. promises here. Let's jump into the word and see where God starts off with this. Genesis chapter 12, we're going to start with verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. Now this is uh, interesting because now at this point, God told him to leave. Abram is now 75 years old. Now that does not sound like a great age to start over. (laughs) It does not sound like a good time to go get a new career, like a good time to pack up all the family, all your things and travel across some pretty tough terrain and and end up in a whole new land and start over at the ripe ripe young age of 75 that doesn't sound great but that's what God asked him to do and that's what happens verse 2 God says I will make you into a great nation now again this is a problem here because um, God says I'm going to make you into a great nation but Abram is 75 years old and he does not have one single child not one. So Abram's got a late start here. So he's going to have to speed some things up if he's going to make it happen. Doesn't look promising. God says, I will bless you and make you famous. Well, that did happen. He did that. And, and you will be a blessing to others. Now, verse three, I will bless those who bless you. This is, I don't have time to camp out on this, but I want to. This, this is important. This has to do with us today, this day. He says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those that treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. I am going to mention that last phrase. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. This is significant. This also has to do with us right now, this very moment. This is God's promise to Abram that he is going to kick off his plan to redeem the world with Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to be born into, through the family of Abram. That is significant for us today. And that's what God is telling Abram. And so God is making some great promises here to Abram. And we could call this a covenant. And what does Abram have to do here to make all this happen? What is his job? This is what's so amazing. God is not requiring anything really from Abram. All Abram has to do is just really simply accept what God is saying and and, and just kind of follow God in his word. Just kind of trust God. That's all that's going on there. God also promises Abram through this whole series that 
that his descendants, the nation that is going to come from Abram, is going to have a very specific piece of real estate to call their own, and it will be their own. And in fact, this piece of real estate is important then, right then to Abram, it's going to be important to the future of this nation, because this is where God is going to send his Redeemer, God himself, Jesus, to play out this enormous love story that God has for the entire world. It's going to happen in that nation, on that land that God is giving Abram. He said that's where it's all going to happen. And then it also, just to give you a little spoiler alert, it has a lot to do with the end times as well. That whole piece of real estate, it's a big deal. Now, sometime later, after God makes these promises to Abram, this next conversation between God and Abram takes place. So let's see what happens here. Genesis chapter 15, verse 8. But God had promised, this land is going to be your people's. This land will be yours. And here's what it says, But verse 8. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? Verse 9, the Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So God is basically saying, Abram, okay, your part is just bring me these things. Just bring this stuff to me. That's what I want you to do. And it says in verse 10, so Abram presented all of these to him, to God, and he killed them. In other words, he sacrificed them as God asked him to do. Now this was what you would call a blood sacrifice. And this blood sacrifice is being used by God in this thing called a blood covenant. And that's what we are seeing. This is an agreement, an arrangement, a promise, a covenant that is going to involve, be sealed by, kind of uh, be ratified by, be confirmed by the, the sacrifice of these animals. It goes on. It says, then he, that's, um, that's Abram, cut each animal down the middle. Now, obviously, the, these were some big animals. There's going to be some blood here. Some, and he cut them into equal halves, cut them down the middle. And it says he laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Not sure why, just followed the directions. That's what God said. He cut them long ways in half. This, this, I was talking to Austin and Aaron this week to find out because they, they know cattle. Today, a three-year-old heifer is going to weigh somewhere around 1,100 to 1,200 pounds. Now, I don't know about ancient heifers, but they're still probably pretty big heifers. And Abram is cutting a heifer and these other animals in half. I can't imagine the mess that's being created in all of this. I just can't imagine. So, so far, this is what God asked Abram to do. He said, bring these animals to this event and I want you to cut, sacrifice them, cut them in half. That's all God asked him to do. That was it. That's your job. There, that's your job, Abram. That's what I want you to do. So that's what he did. And then here's what happened in verse 11. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses. Now, Abram is freaking out at this point. It says, and he chased them away. I can't imagine the stress that Abram is under because here God has said, this is important. This is amazing. I'm God. Bring these things, cut them in half. And now here comes all these giant vulture-like Stuttgart-sized mosquitoes coming down. And he's like, get, get, get out of here. 
you're running the sacrifice. And now God does something amazing because Abram is freaking out over these things, trying to swat them away and get them away. And here's what happens. God is like, he says, listen, guy, I got this. Here's what happened in verse 12. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And here's what God put him and he put the sleeper on him, the chokehold on him. He said, he's basically saying, Abram, listen, I've got this. You have done what I have asked you to do. You did it. I, 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 now, the rest is not up to you. You don't have to protect this. I've got this. You don't have to save the day. I've got this. I, do, I don't need your help with this. I've got it. You lay over there, take a chill pill. We're going to be okay. I've got this. And here's what happened. And a terrifying darkness came over him. That was over Abram. Now God is going to speak to Abram. Listen to how this plays out. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure. In other words, this is a done deal. You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. And that turned out that happened. They were slaves in Egypt. And then it says, verse 14, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And God did that. Remember, the, have you seen the story? The 10 plagues that God sent on Egypt. And then he said, God said, in the end, they will come away, this nation will come away with great wealth. And that's exactly his descendants. These, these Hebrew people that became the nation of Israel, the Egyptians as as Moses was leading them away, the Egyptians were throwing all their jewels and gold and silver onto the carts. And, and the baggage that the Israelites were carrying off, they came away with great wealth from the Egyptians. And then they headed and they crossed the Red Sea. That's how it played out. Verse 15, God says, and as for you, he's talking to Abram, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. And indeed he did. He lived to be about 175 years old. Verse 16, after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. And here we're back at the land that God has promised. We're back at the land. And all of that that God said happened just the way God said it would happen. But let's jump all the way back now to the conversation that God is having with Abram. Abram is off to the side asleep. Here's what Abram has already done. So we've got the covenant. Covenant picture number one there, Ken. He's, they've, Abram has sacrificed the animals, just like God said. He cut them in half, except for the birds. Cut them in half and laid each half together opposite each other, just like kind of similar to what we have drawn there. Now, that's, that's where we started. Now, the second picture, there's just a lot of red there because what we're letting you know is this was, this was a bloody mess. If you can imagine dividing animals in half and these large animals, a, a, a thousand pound, 1100, 1200 pound heifer divided in half, this becomes quite the mess. But now Abram has everything ready just the way God asked him to do it. And now this takes place. And here we go with verse 17. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. See, Abram is off to the side. 
and he's seen all of this happen. And what he's seen, he's seen that God is now acting alone at this point with no help from Abram. God is actually making this official blood covenant now without Abram. I'm going to explain that in just a moment. God had everything to do with this, and now at this moment with this covenant, Abram has now nothing to do with this. It says, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. Now that doesn't mean much to us, but let me explain to you what that means historically. To cut a covenant, as we've kind of depicted, it was a bloody mess. Uh, cutting a covenant left blood everywhere, especially with these, these animals. And now with all of this blood, the people who would take part in the covenant would then pass between the halves, just like the Bible says here, God was passing between the halves. Now that doesn't mean much to us, but historically here's what that means. Uh, Ken, give us that next picture. That's a figure, they would pass between the halves in a figure eight. They would walk between the halves. Now you can imagine already it's a bloody mess, and now passing through those halves in a figure eight. As you do that repeatedly, it's going to form a figure eight on the ground, and it's going to be kind of a a bloody trail that goes between those halves. Now, generally, when a covenant was being cut, when a covenant was being made, it would involve at least two people. And those people would pass um, through that figure eight. They would both pass through the figure eight. And as they were walking through, here is what they, something like this is what they would say. They would say, God, may what has happened to these animals happen to me if I don't keep my part of this covenant. And so each of the two, at least two people who were participating, would have something they had to keep, something they had to do to make the covenant stand. And they were saying, God, if I don't hold my part, do this to me. Each had a part to play. But in this case, God was passing through those animals in a figure eight himself. Abram was not a part of this covenant. This was a covenant God was making with Abram. Nothing depended upon Abram. Everything in this covenant depended upon God and God alone. What did Abram had to do? What did he have to do? He just had to stay off to the side and just simply believe that God would do what he was saying he would do. Just trust that God was really going to do it. God was going to do all the work in this covenant if it was going to be fulfilled. Abram simply had to believe. And here's what we, where we pick it up, verse 18. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the Euphrates River. There it is. And guess what? God keeps his covenant And in this case, the covenant he made with Abram, him alone, he was the only one that had to do anything to keep it, and God is going to keep this covenant with Abraham. You see, Abram is learning something here. Abram is learning something very valuable, and it's our bottom line today. We're going to repeat it several times. Here's what he's learning. Like Abram, we are learning to believe that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. 
That's what Abram is learning, and that's what we are in the process of learning. But here's a really important question for you. This is a personal question for you to ask yourself. Here it is. Am I calling God a liar by the way that I live? When I doubt that God really is in control, when I doubt that God really is all that he said that he is, am I calling God a liar? Here's another question. If I'm not trusting God, then whom am I actually trusting? I mean, whom am I actually believing? If I doubt that God is who he says that he is and he'll do what he said he'll do, then where am I placing that trust and that belief? Because I'm placing it somewhere. Now, Abram, this whole scenario between him and God and this blood covenant gives us some snapshots of our future, where we are today. So let's take three little quick snapshots of Abram and God, and let's see what that means to us today. Just very quickly, I just want to throw these in and give them to you. So God told Abram, he said this, he said, I'm going to take care of all of this. I'm going to fulfill this covenant myself. I don't fail. What does that mean for us today? Here's what I think we can learn from that. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, there are no more scales for you. If you have submitted your life and given it to him, there are no more scales. You don't have to worry about tipping the scales. You don't have to worry about how heavy this scale is and the fact that you can never remove what's in it. You don't have to worry about that. We learn that from God because God holds your salvation. God holds your salvation. He keeps your salvation. In fact, Jesus said this, I haven't lost any. Every single one God's placed in my hand, I haven't lost. He said it in John chapter 6, verse 39. Here's what he said. And this is the will of God, Jesus said, that I should not lose even one of those that he has given me, but I should raise them up on the last day. He said, I, I haven't lost a one. I keep your salvation. It's up to me. It's not up to you. You can't be good enough to get it. You will never be good enough to keep it. I keep it for you. Here's snapshot number two. So God himself initiated this covenant with Abram. And for us today, what's the snapshot for us today? I believe it's this, that God came to rescue you and me before we ever even knew. God initiated our rescue before we ever even knew we needed to be rescued. Paul says it in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, we were utterly helpless. Just at that moment when we were utterly helpless, we couldn't do anything about it. Here's what he says, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. God initiated it. Here's the third snapshot. God did this on his own with Abram. So, there was nothing for Abram to do. All he had to do was sit there and accept it to sit there and trust that God really would take care of all of this. For us today, we can't save ourselves. We can never be good enough to tilt the scale in our favor, ever. We never will. It is in faith alone, 
and our faith in Jesus alone that takes care of that. For us, we can't ever do it. And here's how the Bible words that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation is not a reward for good things we've done. God is not going to look at your scales and say, yes, you finally did it. You tilted the scale in your favor. So I declare you, come on in. That's not the way it works. He says it's never, no, salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So why? So no one can boast about it. It's all about what Jesus has done, not what you or me are doing. And now for us, the bottom line again, like Abram, we are learning. Now we are learning. We're learning to believe, to trust, to understand who God is, that he is who he said he is, and he will do what he says he will do. Now let me give you a little picture here. The writer of Hebrews, we're going to jump from the Old Testament story of Abram where God is cutting this covenant with Abram. And all Abram had to do was believe and trust that God really was going to do what he said he would do. Now let's jump to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, the Hebrew writer says this in chapter 11, verse 13. All of these people who died, he's talking about people like Abram and uh, people of faith who were believing and trusting God in the Old Testament times. It says this, all of these people died still believing what God had promised them. In other words, they didn't see it happen. They believed it's going to come in the future. Even if I don't see it with my eyes, I believe it's going to happen because God is going to do what he said he would do. God is who he says he is. They're believing that. They're trusting that. It says they did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and they welcomed it. In other words, they knew it was coming in the future. They agreed that they were going to be foreigners and nomads here on earth. In other words, they they knew that was going to happen. God will do what he said he was going to do. And then the writer goes on now to describe some specific people. And listen to this. These were people who had faith. And listen to what they saw. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 32. He says, the writer says, How much more do I need to say? It would take far too long for me to recount the stories of faith, of Gideon. He goes through this list of superheroes in the faith. He says, uh, Gideon and and Bracken, and he goes through Samson, he goes through this whole list, and he talks about all these people, and then look at what he says in verse 33. By faith, these people, they overthrew kingdoms. Uh, They ruled with justice. These people, with their faith, they received what God had promised them. They saw things happen in their life, in them and around them. It says they shut the mouths of lions, verse 34. They quenched the flames of fire and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weaknesses, it said it was turned into strength. They became strong in battle, and they, and they put whole armies to flight. Women, in verse 35, women, even some received their loved ones back from the death. And now, those were all the good things. But the writer says, oh, there's so many more, though. So many more that still believed what God said, believed that God is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he would do. But this other section is a bigger section, and these people, I can't list all the names, but listen, he's saying these people, they did not have healthy endings to their stories. They didn't have happy endings on their lives here on this earth. But he says, but they still believed God that he is who he says that he is, and he's going to do what he says he will do. And here's how the writer words this, but others were tortured, 
refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. In other words, they could have been set free, but they refused to turn away from God. They chose to believe Him instead. It says, they placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection, verse 36. Some were jeered at. That doesn't sound too bad, being jeered at. And it says, and their backs were cut open with whips. Well, that sounds a lot worse. He goes on, others were chained in prisons, verse 37. Some died by stoning. And listen, stoning, uh, it sounds it sounds okay. It was a horrible, horrible death. Some died by stoning. Some, it gets worse, were sawed in half. These were people who were trusting that God is who He says He is. He'll do what He says He would do. And their end result on this earth was they were sawed in half. Others were killed with a sword. Some went about wearing skins and sheep and goats, and they, they, they were destitute and oppressed, and they were mistreated. Let's skip down to verse 39. All of these people earned a good reputation because their faith, because of their faith, yet none of them, it says, received all that God had promised. In other words, all of these people, these people, they trusted even though they did not see it in their lifetime, what the outcome was going to be, they trusted that, yes, God is who He says He is. He's going to do what He says He will do, even though these people suffered and hurt. Wow. But isn't for us, aren't these the stories? Aren't these the stories that encourage us to go on? When you see someone around you in your life that everything is going wrong, and maybe it's their health, maybe, maybe it's something else happening, but it's going wrong, but yet they say, I still trust God. Doesn't that move you? That God is still who He says He is no matter what's happening to me right now in my life. And God will do what He says He will do no matter what's going on right now at this moment. So for us too, we are on a journey to learn to trust God. Like Abram, we're learning to believe that God is who He says He is and He will do what He says He will do. And listen, we are not telling you today that your story here on this earth is going to be carefree and it's going to be pain-free. We're not telling you that because God does not promise you that. But you know what God does promise you? God promises this, that He will never leave you if you belong to Him. He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. But here's a question. How, how do you know that God has promised you that? Is it just because I've told you? How, how do you know that He's promised you that? How do you know that you can really believe that statement? Uh, my question would be, would be this, well, where is it? Can you find that promise? How do you actually know that that promise is there? And here's the thing. But many of you still believe though, right? You still believe. If I were to ask you, do you believe? You would say, Harley, yes, yes, I, I, I do believe. And I would concur and I would say, yes, I believe too. I do too. But guess what? Your pastor, one of your, I'm one of your pastors. I am still learning 
to believe. And I'm still learning to trust that God is who he says he is. And I'm still learning to trust that God will do what he says he will do. And I'm going to submit this to you this morning. Before we can really trust that of God, that he is who he says he is, and he'll do what he says he will do. Now, I'm not talking about your salvation I'm just talking about you just trusting that God really is who he says he is and he really do what he said he will do. Before you can trust that of God, I'm going to submit to you this. You have to know what it is that God says. You have to know who God says that he is and you have to know what God says he will do. And so my step of faith for you this morning, a big giant step this morning, I'm going to ask you to get to know God for yourself. Get to know who does God tell you that he is? And what does God tell you that he will do? Now, I'm not asking you to just kind of have a dream and come up with what that is, because you don't have to do that. He's already told you, and it's in his word. And I'm asking you, will you get to know what God has said about himself? Will you get to know that for yourself? And will you get to know what God has said about what he will do? Will you get to know that from his word for yourself? And to give you a start on that, because this is a big deal. This is not something that you can just do about 30 seconds a day. This is a big deal. But to get you a start on it, I I wrote a very short blog article, and I've already posted it to the church Facebook page. I've put a link on there, and that will get you started. Now, if you don't have Facebook, holler at me. I will find a way to make sure. If you don't have uh, internet access, I'll find a way to make sure you get the information. But let me know. But that's going to get you started. We're going to ask you to actually jump in there in your relationship with God through God's word and find out who does God say he is so that you can say, yes, that God right there, I trust you in that. And when he says, this is what I will do, you can say, God, yes, yes, there, right there, God, I trust you in that. Because otherwise, how do you know? If you don't know what God has said about who he is, and if you don't know what God has said about what he will do, will you take that step with us? Because after all, like Abram, we are learning to believe that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. Let's pray. God, your word tells us that many of these people died not having seen what you were going to do, but you had promised it and they believed it. And God, you counted that as faith. And God, may we personally today take the challenge to get to know you personally, to discover God, who you have said, you've already told us in your word, who you are and what you want us to understand of that. And may we get to know that and see that and say, yes, God, I trust you. And may we learn from your word what you have said you will do so that we can honestly say, God, I believe you. You have told me in your word. And yes, God, I believe you. And God, we're going to need your help. This is a giant step. 
but may we be willing to embark upon this journey. Like Abram, we are learning to believe that you are God who you said that you are, and you, God, will do what you've said you will do. In the name of Jesus, our Redeemer, we pray. Amen.